Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Kislak Family Fund, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history. It's also made possible in part by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens at 1320 Highland Avenue in the O'Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, we'll talk with James C. Clark, author of the book Red Pepper and Gorgeous George, Claude Pepper's epic defeat in the 1950 Democratic primary. People assumed he was for civil rights, for example, when he was an opponent of civil rights. Florida historian Eugene Lyon has discovered that the earliest Spanish settlers resorted to cannibalism, which was unfortunate for their Protestant French captives. It appears as if many, if not all, of the French prisoners were killed as cannibalism took place. We'll visit Fort Jefferson in the Dry Tortugas west of Key West. That and more ahead on Florida Frontiers. When modern political commentators discuss the divisiveness of contemporary American politics, they often refer to Florida's 1950 Democratic primary as an example of a particularly contentious campaign. George Smathers defeated Claude Pepper in that hard-fought contest. James C. Clark is author of the book Red Pepper and Gorgeous George, Claude Pepper's Epic Defeat in the 1950 Democratic Primary, published by the University Press of Florida. Clark says that Florida's 1950 Democratic primary was just as contentious as our modern political battles. It really was. First of all, Florida had never seen anything like it. Uh, Because of the longevity of the senators, it wasn't until the 1930s that Floridians elected senators. Um, The uh, earlier senators had been appointed by the legislature and just reaffirmed by the voters. So uh, picking senators was fairly new in Florida, and uh, uh, the earlier races had not been as contentious. There was something about Claude Pepper, though, that made him a controversial figure. It's strange and As we look at Claude today, everybody remembers him as a sort of national grandfather uh, who worked for the elderly and and did many good things. But I would argue that uh, in the 1940s, uh, Claude Pepper, along with uh, Henry Wallace and maybe someone like Paul Robeson, was one of the most controversial men in the country. Prior to the escalation of the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union, and before the anti-communist paranoia of McCarthyism had a firm grip on Washington, Claude Pepper worked to establish good relations with the USSR, even paying a visit to Joseph Stalin. Pepper's support of communism, or at least his lack of fear about it, was a key factor in the 1950 campaign. Jim Clark. Pepper was often right 
he uh, he could see things. Uh, he talked about Franklin Roosevelt having this ability, and and he had it to a certain extent also uh, to see things that were going to come down the road and hop on the bandwagon before they got there. Before World War II, he was the leading advocate for a military buildup in this country. He told everyone who would listen that Hitler was going to be a problem for us. Uh, for that, he was mocked. The Senate people on the Senate floor, his fellow senators, made fun of him, called him uh, ridiculous. Um, and so after the war, he thought that the coming issue would be relations with Russia. But this time he guessed wrong. He bet that we would have good relations with Russia. And if he championed that, he would come out with a better reputation, just as he had with the Hitler uh, incident. And unfortunately for him, he guessed wrong. Relations with Russia did not get better. They got far worse. President Franklin D. Roosevelt's New Deal sought to lift the United States out of the Great Depression through relief for the poor, recovery of the economy, and reform of the financial system. Perhaps most substantive in the 1950 debate was Claude Pepper's support of the New Deal and George Smathers' opposition to it. Claude Pepper went to Washington in uh, 1936 determined to support uh, the New Deal. He aligned himself with uh, President Roosevelt and clung tightly to him. He was a uh, dependable vote for the New Deal. And it's strange that uh, in the South, Franklin Roosevelt enjoyed his greatest electoral support, but also his greatest opposition from Democratic senators. But Pepper remained loyal to Roosevelt, and he was uh, 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 a champion of a number of initiatives, including Social Security. After the war, he continued this liberal bent uh, while the nation was becoming a little more conservative. Uh, I think Truman struck a little more conservative note so that uh, his uh, championing uh, national health insurance, for example, uh, brought down the wrath of the doctors, uh, pushing for uh, uh, union rights in Florida, uh, brought opposition from businesses. So um, I think that uh, he, he was probably the last New Dealer left in office. Everyone else trimmed their sails or got beaten. Some of the other issues of Florida's 1950 Democratic primary sound remarkably contemporary, such as labor rights, health care reform, and government regulation of business. Jim Clark explains where Pepper and Smathers stood on these issues. I think if, if these two people were running today, George Smathers would be the Republican and Claude Pepper would be the Democrat. But back then, there was no Republican Party to speak of in Florida. And so the real election was the Democratic primary. Whoever won the primary uh, would get the election. Uh, and so you had uh, a number of cases, and this would continue uh, even till today, where you have uh, in either party more conservative, more liberal, and they battle it out there uh, for the soul of their party. So I think uh, uh, Smathers uh, called himself a liberal and was very close to Harry Truman and uh, supported most of Truman's initiatives, but uh, certainly was 
was no New Dealer. The landmark Supreme Court case Brown versus the Board of Education, which led to the integration of schools, was still four years away in 1950, and the Civil Rights Act wouldn't be passed for another 14 years. Civil rights issues did play a role in Florida's 1950 Democratic primary. It's funny, somebody, uh, somebody challenged me on this and said, you can't possibly be right. Um, Claude Pepper was a traditional Southern racist. Uh, from the time he first ran for office in 1934 uh, until he left the Senate in 1950. He uh, proclaimed uh, states' rights. He proclaimed white rights. He said that uh, blacks should never be allowed to vote in the Democratic primary and that he would fight for that. He bragged that both of his grandfathers had fought for the Confederacy. And so he was uh, uh, certainly as racist as any of the others. He filibustered against anti-lynching legislation. Uh, Smathers kind of got a pass on civil rights. He was a congressman from uh, uh, Miami where that simply was not an issue. It didn't come up. So Pepper was on the record with many racist stands while uh, Smathers got a pass. President Harry Truman played an important role in the 1950 race between Claude Pepper and George Smathers. Jim Clark says that Truman's history with Pepper influenced his perspective. Harry Truman hated Claude Pepper, just despised Claude Pepper. Strangely enough, they began their Senate careers. They came about the same time to the Senate, both surprise upset winners from their states, people with very little political background, people who everyone thought couldn't possibly win, and they sat next to each other. But over the years, Truman came to despise Pepper. He, uh, Truman said one time that he was up in uh, Maine dedicating a battleship, and he was giving a radio address to a national audience, and in the middle of the address, Pepper came up and tried to steal the microphone from him. And he said that uh, uh, he wrote to a friend in Tampa, T uh, Truman did, saying uh, that uh, Pepper was just a publicity seeker. He called him that. Um, and so, uh, remember, Pepper tried to deny Truman the 1944 vice presidential nomination and tried to deny him the 1948 presidential nomination. So there was a lot of animosity there, and it was Truman who recruited Smathers to run against Pepper, called him to the White House, and said, I want you to go down and do a survey, find out what the issues and situation is, and report back to me. Interestingly, some of the best-known and most frequently quoted aspects of this campaign are really folktales that are simply false. Jim Clark. Time magazine uh, published um, what, what they said was tongue-in-cheek, uh, a speech that Smathers supposedly gave. The idea was... North Florida voters weren't very bright. And if you used big words, you could confuse them and make the opponent sound terrible simply by saying truthful things. And so the, if you, uh, it's funny if you Google this speech, there are about a half a million hits on Google. Uh, but the original thing was that his uh, sister was a thespian in wicked New York. Since then, the speech has grown like topsy. It's now uh, probably about a thousand words. It originally was about ten words, um, 
as people have added on to it over the years, clearly this, this speech by Smathers was never given. And uh, Smathers, for all of his life, he lived uh, uh, more than half a century, always offered a $10,000 award to anyone who could prove that the speech had been given. Um, and it's amazing that um, George Smathers served three terms in the Senate. He was close to Kennedy. He was close to Nixon, uh, did a lot in Latin American affairs. And what he's best remembered for is a speech he never gave. The infamous thespian speech is still remembered, although it was never given, and there are other lingering misperceptions about Florida's 1950 Democratic primary race. I think that because people came to love Claude, the Claude Pepper of the 1970s and 80s, that Smathers was always cast as the villain, that Pepper was the good liberal. People assumed he was for civil rights, for example, when he was an opponent of civil rights. Um, people, uh, if they ever knew it, forgot that he had gone to Moscow, uh, met with Stalin, and uh, called Stalin the most powerful man in the world. I'm not sure anybody could get elected to office in Florida today going around praising um, uh, Stalin. And he also, as he moved to the left, uh, embrace these uh, far left-wing unions, communist front unions like the fur workers, which everyone knew were communist. He had a communist speechwriter on his staff. Uh, it was strange because uh, the FBI was tailing the communist speechwriter and ended up tailing a United States senator because the two were often together. So I think that people take away from Smathers, who ran a brilliant campaign and uh, instituted a number of new things that have, for example, direct mail, that have become standards in political campaigns. Uh, people don't realize that uh, George Smathers set the precedent um, for a, a number of elections. Richard Nixon in California used his blueprint to win in California Senate seat. Two years later, Barry Goldwater in Arizona used the same blueprint to win out there. Uh, in Idaho, it was used. A number of people took what George Smathers had done and rode it to victory. Although many Floridians today are unaware of our state's political history, Jim Clark points out that we still feel the impact of the 1950 Democratic primary, whether we realize it or not. I think that it ended any kind of real liberal tradition in Florida. Uh, it became clear that someone like uh, Claude Pepper, uh, remember the governor at that same time, was Fuller Warren, who was uh, a liberal. Uh, we had had a number of fairly liberal governors during that period. And I think the message it sent clearly was, this is the end. Um, uh, after Pepper's defeat, of course, the very controversial Johns Committee comes along, uh, seeking communists, uh, red baiting. And so I think that the legacy of this election, uh, not only in terms of being uh, a blueprint for others who ran, but also as uh, an indicator of what was to come in Florida. 
James C. Clark is author of the book Red Pepper and Gorgeous George, Claude Pepper's Epic Defeat in the 1950 Democratic Primary, published by the University Press of Florida. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit our website at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, search the archive of the Library of Florida History, shop for great books on Florida history and culture, and much more. Click on the Join Now button to become a member of the Florida Historical Society. You'll receive our journal, the Florida Historical Quarterly, and our newsletter. That's myfloridahistory.org. In 1513, Spanish explorer Juan Ponce de Leon landed on Florida's shore, beginning a cultural relationship between Spain and Florida that will be commemorated throughout the state on its 500th anniversary in 2013. This moment in Florida history features University of North Florida historian Michael Francis. When he signed his royal contract, or asiento, with the Spanish king Philip II on March of 1565, St. Augustine's founder, Pedro Menendez de Aviles, carried lofty ambitions for his Florida enterprise. For his part, the Spanish king wanted Menendez to establish a permanent foothold on Florida's Atlantic coast to protect Spanish treasure fleets sailing north through the Bahama Channel and the Florida Straits. A French or British settlement in the region could be used to assault the fleet as it sailed home, laden with silver, gold, and other valuables. King Philip II also wanted permanent bases in Florida to shelter shipwrecked mariners and to salvage the goods from the many vessels that sank near Florida's shores. In the absence of a permanent settlement, shipwrecked survivors were often taken captive with little hope of rescue or ransom. Finally, a base in Florida could be used to launch further explorations into the vast interior of North America. At the time, many believed rivers connected northeast Florida to the Gulf of Mexico, or even the Pacific Ocean. And perhaps America's interior boasted yet other sources of wealth, undiscovered by Europeans. University of North Florida historian Michael Francis. This moment in Florida history was created and produced by the Florida Humanities Council with funds from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, commemorating 500 years of Spanish history and culture in Florida. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. In 2011, Eugene Lyon was presented with the Lifetime Achievement Award of the Florida Historical Society. As Janie Gould reports, Lyon has discovered that the first Spanish settlers in Florida resorted to cannibalism. Mention Spanish explorers in Florida, and you're likely to think of Ponce de Leon or DeSoto. Schools, hotels, streets, and a county are named for one or the other. 
Then there's the nearly forgotten Pedro Menendez de Avalos. Historian Eugene Lyons says Menendez is really the founder of Florida. He established St. Augustine, the nation's oldest city, in 1565, after the Spanish king sent him west with orders to get rid of the French. And it was his duty to drive them out. They were heretics. They were what he called Lutherans, what we would call Protestants. As Menendez and his men made their way south, they massacred about 400 French settlers near present-day Matanzas Inlet. Matanzas means slaughter in Spanish. Then, on December 13, 1565, the feast day of St. Lucie, they landed near Jupiter Inlet and built a fort they named Santa Lucia. By that time, though, Menendez wasn't with them. He had gone on to Cuba. His men and their French captives were out of food. It appears as if many, if not all, of the French prisoners were killed as cannibalism took place. Cannibalism by the Spaniards toward the French. Yes. You've seen records of this in archives? Yes, in Seville. Several of the survivors stated that they had killed and eaten the French because they were starving. Wow. Desperate measures, I guess. Desperate measures. He said that they had nothing to eat after the supplies the Indians gave them ran out. Menendez saved the men on his return from Cuba. Then, when he got back to St. Augustine, he found that the troops he had left there had gotten pretty unruly, so he enacted a set of laws. Insubordination, blasphemy, or fighting with sword or dagger are punished by time in the stocks, whipping, deprivation of rations, perpetual sentence to the galleys, or death. Attendance at Mass and the learning of the Catechism was obligatory. Harsh times required harsh measures? Yes, and it was the 16th century. Protestants and Catholics were killing each other in France and elsewhere. This was just part of that pattern. And cannibalism between Spaniards and the French. That's pretty bad. Why do you think he's not remembered as vividly as some of the other Spanish conquistadors. Because of La Leyenda Negra. Because of what? Leyenda Negra, the black legend. That's something really encouraged by the Protestant literature in Europe. Essentially, that the Spaniards did everything wrong and the Protestants maybe did everything right. That's one of the reasons why uh, Menendez is not remembered well. He's remembered as a bloodthirsty uh, tyrant, if he's remembered at all. Yes, somewhat. Do you think that Florida would have been established at that time if he hadn't come here? I really don't think anyone else could have shown the uh, force and power that he did to expel the French. A hurricane helped drive away the French ships, but he killed the French settlers. How long did Spanish Florida then survive? It really survived until 1821. There was a period of English settlement. So except for a brief interregnum, it was Spanish domination for about two centuries. The Spanish flag flew over Florida for a much longer time than any other banner has flown. No trace has been found of the fort called Santa Lucia, but the name was adopted more than three centuries later for St. Lucie County. Eugene Lyon also did research in Spain that helped Mel Fisher locate the Atocha, a Spanish treasure ship that sank in 1622. Lyon lives in Vero Beach. Janie Gould of WQCS prepared that report. In 1825, a fortress called Fort Jefferson was constructed on Garden Key, west of Key West. 
Bill Dudley has this look at Fort Jefferson. It's probably the largest and, and most impressive military structure that was that was ever built. Thomas Reed is a lecturer in American history at Lamar University in Texas. He's the author of America's Fortress, the story of Fort Jefferson and the Dry Tortugas. It was designed, actually, to be the most heavily armed fortress in North America. 150 cannons, 150 guns per level, which would have totaled 450. The story begins in the 1840s, with the United States poised to double its size, bringing in Oregon and Minnesota territories, and large parts of Mexico, including Texas. Florida and several other states are joining the Union, and Americans believe in progress and expansion. To protect our coast, a line of defensive forts is planned. Peter Carmichael is professor in Civil War Studies at West Virginia University. The construction of Jefferson is part of this it's a very lengthy chain of land fortifications. It is part of this nation being able to sort of assert itself on, one might say, the world stage or the hemispheric stage. The Dry Tortugas, 68 miles west of Key West, were named by Juan Ponce de Leon in 1513. Although there was no fresh water there, his men found large numbers of sea turtles, which they slaughtered for food. One of these lonely coral islands would be the site for Fort Jefferson. It's not at all typical of the coastal defense fortresses that had been built at the time because it really isn't in a position to defend any kind of a population center. From the beginning, disease, including outbreaks of yellow fever, unrelenting heat, and threat of hurricanes made the work of building the high walls and towers slow and torturous. Materials and supplies all had to be brought in by boat. Key West slave owners supplied blacks for much of the hard labor, but the engineers and soldiers stationed there were totally unfit to cope with the heat and the poor sanitation. I think it was justified when it was conceived and when it was started. It was actually started in 1846. By the time that it's actually constructed and could actually have been armed the eve of the Civil War in 1860, 61, it was never effective for the purpose that it was initially designed for. When the Civil War began, Jefferson was still unfinished, but it soon became home to several companies of soldiers and beginning in 1863, a number of Union prisoners. The prisons in the North were filling with Confederate prisoners of war, and the Union really didn't have anywhere practical to send their own soldiers that had been convicted by court-martial, so they just by default, not really a plan, they began sending all of those uh, court-martialed soldiers, convicted soldiers, down to uh, Fort Jefferson, which of course had never been designed to be a prison. You couldn't really secure people there very, very well. By war's end, nearly 900 prisoners were housed in makeshift quarters in the fort, with around 600 soldiers to guard them. Men succumbed to disease on an almost daily basis. Following the assassination of President Lincoln, four of the conspirators, Dr. Samuel Mudd, Edmund Spangler, Samuel Arnold, and Michael O'Laughlin, were brought to the fort. Because of its isolation, because there was no easy access, it would make it easier, of course, to be able to guard them and to prevent any kind of internal insurgency from anyone getting any ideas of trying to liberate these men. After the war, construction on the fort continued. As late as 1873, heavy guns were being brought in by ship and hoisted to their positions, although by now Fort Jefferson had ceased to have any strategic or tactical importance. A new sort of rifled naval artillery had made those masonry structures like that obsolete. Nevertheless, Congress continued funding Fort Jefferson actually through 1874. 
but after yet another yellow fever outbreak and a hurricane which damaged parts of the fort, work finally ceased once and for all. It was virtually forgotten. It became a quarantine station for ships that were suspected carrying smallpox. And then it was a, a naval station, the battleship Maine that was destroyed in Havana Harbor later and really started the Spanish-American War had just left Fort Jefferson after taking on coal. Since the 1930s, the Dry Tortugas have been protected as a national park and wildlife sanctuary. Visitors come by seaplane or boat from Key West for camping, diving, and bird watching. Endangered sea turtles can once again safely lay their eggs in the sand. And the giant structure that still towers over the islands is today little more than a footnote to history. Fort Jefferson, in spite of the incredible armament and the size of it, was never engaged in any sort of offensive or defensive military operation. Never. Historian Tom Reed. His book, America's Fortress, is published by University Press. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us again next week, and until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org and follow us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Kislak Family Fund, supporter of education, arts, humanities, and Florida history. It's also made possible in part by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens at 1320 Highland Avenue in the O'Galley section of Melbourne, Florida.